Let's talk about some retirement planning topics and considerations specific to women with special guest Laura Adams in this, the 88th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Well, hello, everybody. Happy Leap Year. This episode is getting released on February 29th, 2024. 29th day in February only happens once every four years or so. Gotta love the way the calendar works. Also, this is the fifth Thursday of this month. Normally, uh, as you as you know, in the Gregorian calendar, at least each month typically has uh, four of each day of the week. And so this podcast, the format is the first Thursday of the month is me, just me and my microphone going into uh, pretty deep into some topic. The second Thursday, uh, second Thursday of the episode is me having on another retirement planner to pick his or her brain and, and get their views on things. The third Wednesday is me having on a quote unquote real person to talk about their retirement planning. And the fourth uh, Thursday of the month, sorry if I said Wednesday before, I meant Thursday, the fourth Thursday of the month, that episode will be me doing a Q&A of listener questions. For the uh, few times a year where there is a fifth Thursday, I'll be doing a to-be-determined topic. This month's to-be-determined topic, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to share. It is special guest Laura Adams is joining me to talk all about women-specific considerations and concerns and risks when it comes to financial and retirement planning. I think you're really going to like this. Laura's a great person. She is uh, rather well-known in the uh, you know money content, financial content world. She's an author. She hosts the Money Girl podcast, which has been around, I believe, 15 years, I think she said, which absolutely blows my mind to, to be doing this weekly for that long. She also has a great newsletter called The Money Stack. You can find links to all these things and, and her website in the notes of this episode. So I will quit uh, gap, gabbing, ga- gabbing, gapping, whatever. I'll quit taking up your time now with this intro, and I will bring to you my uh, chat with Laura Adams about women-specific retirement and financial planning considerations. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening and watching. Today, we have a very, very special treat. We have a guest, Laura Adams, joining the show. Laura, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Andy. So good to see you again. I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. So Laura, for those who don't know, is an author and the host of the Money Girl podcast and super excited. Today's topic, we're going to discuss special considerations and planning areas around women and finance, women in retirement. And very timely because this episode is airing end of February, which is about a week prior to March 8th, which is actually International Women's Day. Isn't that right, Laura? That is right. So kind of a good day to dig into this topic and and just sort of remind people of issues that affect women. So I'm really happy to talk about this topic. And you are the perfect guest to discuss the topic. So I'm looking forward to this. But Laura, before we start, I have a question for you. What do you call a group of anxious dinosaurs? Oh, man. Anxious dinosaurs. I don't know. You got me. <laughs> Nervous Rex, of course. Right? All right. Yay. Love yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Laura, International Women's Day coming up. And, you know, in, in my practice, I work with single folks, married folks, uh, women, men. And it, it, it is interesting that many people don't realize this, but in, in, planning for retirement and planning for finances, there are unique challenges, differences, areas of consideration for for women that come into the mix. And, you know, I see it play out firsthand with some clients and it's no doubt very important things to consider. So one of the things that comes to mind, and I'll let you touch on you know, a bunch of others, is like longer life expectancy of nothing else, right? Women, I don't know the actual statistics, but, you know, women live longer than men, generally speaking. So all else equal, you need to plan for that. Are there, are there any, you know, other sort of statistics or, or info you can sort of shed to that? Or is it just people need to keep in mind that all else equal? Again, women are going to probably live longer. 
Yeah, you know, and I'll say when I was younger and people used to talk about women's financial issues, I used to say, you know, kind of like, Pahui, that's that's not, there's no difference between men and women's finances. It's all the same. We have to um, spend less than we earn. We have to save, we have to invest. But the older I've gotten, I think the more clarity I've gotten around some of these differences. And it's not that those fundamentals don't exist. But as you mentioned, I think there are just some special considerations that women really need to, to think about and may not even be aware of, you know, as they are planning. So, yeah, the biggest difference between men and women, just biologically, we are going to likely outlive a, a male partner if we have one. Um, so the latest you know, life expectancy stats that I have found are that it is uh, 81 for women, 76 for men. So, you know, you're talking about a, a five-year difference, which, which is pretty significant. Um, so that is something really to think about how, you know, not only how are you going to have enough for a longer life, paying for bills, paying for that lifestyle, an additional length of time, but also how will you do that as a single person, you know, if you do outlive a male spouse, I think is really something also that a lot of couples don't really think about in, in planning. They think about planning as a couple, but they don't really think about what are we going to do when, when one of us is a likely a single. It's very rare for a couple to die, you know, at, at, at a, exactly the same point right. in time. So um, thinking about the fact that it's probably going to be the female that will outlive the male. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of um, having enough in savings, having enough uh, in retirement, and just thinking about, you know, Am I am I planning for a life as a single person? And that's a hard thing for a lot of couples to talk about and and acknowledge, especially if you've been with a partner for you know fifty years. You know, in some cases, when you're near retirement, that's the case for my mom. She and my dad were married for I think fifty three years when my dad died a couple of years ago, and a lot of their plans were really. Um, around what he wanted to do, he, you know, the, where he wanted to live. And a lot of plans were made around him. And my mom, you know, had her ideas, but sort of went, went along with some things. Then he suddenly died from massive heart failure, like died instantly. And then, you know, all of her plans were completely kind of flipped on its head. So we never know what is going to come. But I do think that the life expectancy is something, you know, we just have to accept and, and right. hopefully, you know, we're, hopefully we will die closer to the, the partner's age. Uh, but in a lot of cases, that's just not the reality. Now I'm curious in, in your parents' case, was your mom or, or your father while he was still alive, did they sort of acknowledge this was something that could occur and discuss it ahead of time? And, and, attempt to start to plan for what it might look like? Or was it just head no. in the sand, either intentionally or not? I don't think they really thought about it. In fact, my mom has had some um, chronic health issues. So I think the assumption was, well, she's going to die first, you know, and, and dad will be left. So and it happened exactly the opposite of what they I think both really expected. So, you know, that I don't think they could have ever predicted uh, you know, my mom's reality today. And fortunately, she's doing fine and doing great. Um, but, you know, it could have turned out very different. Yeah. And, and it's sort of interesting to see the difference of approaches and the folks I work with, some of them, you know, in the case of couples, some, both parties are very engaged and very grab the reins and face this head on that one of them is likely to predecease the other. And they sort of plan accordingly and, and consider what that might look like. Others, it's just, no, you know, the, the, I guess yeah. deep down they're aware it's something to have to consider. But the idea of thinking about mortality and the reality of that, some people just do not want to deal with. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but um, yeah. It is nonetheless a very stark difference in how people approach this, which is which is fascinating almost. 
It is. Yeah. So that is definitely, I think, the main consideration that women need to think about. Um, And, you know, another thing that women are dealing with is in, in most cases, maybe they're stepping away from a career to raise a family. So their income is going to have some interruption. And in a lot of cases, women make that lost time out of the workforce, they may never really be able to make that up. So when thinking about having the resources to save and invest, they may be starting from a bit of a disadvantage if they did have to step out of the workforce to care for a young family or even for aging parents or both. As we yeah. know, you know, now the sandwich generation is is dealing with both ends of that care. And so just knowing that you know, maybe I'm going to have to go back to work part-time or maybe step out completely. There's just an income um, disparity there that is really difficult. You know, you think about how that affects your social security income in the future, how it affects your ability to save and invest now. That really is another issue that women have to kind of get ahead of and and save a little bit extra and plan a little bit more um, more aggressively, you know, if that is something that they do have as a goal to be able to have a family and maybe step away for a few years or many years. Um, that yeah. that can really be a, a difficult thing to plan for. And a lot of women don't know that that's what they want, perhaps until the family arrives. And then it's like, you know what, I really... I really don't want to go back to work. I thought I did, but, you know, I really would love to to be with kids in these formative years. Um, right. So that that career interruption is something that I also see kind of sneaking up on women um, in ways that maybe they didn't expect. Yeah. Human capital, the ability to use your mind and body to earn wages, potentially, you know, a, a long life of wages is incredibly powerful financially, separate from financial capital, which is money, stocks, whatever, and then social capital, things like pension, social security, but human capital, tremendously valuable and and really compounds over time. So to the extent someone steps away short term, multiple years, or goes sort of job shares or part time, again, that, that compounding effect or lack of compounding effect can really make a difference over the long haul. Now, I'm curious, I don't know if you have any such statistics, but are you aware of any changes has, has sort of, you know, the the historical differences between genders in career interruptions, lifetime earnings, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But if you see that changing, you know, the difference compressing, narrowing or flip the script, you know, are more males now likely to stay home or have career interruptions um, versus before? Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely seeing more equality there. And we're also seeing a lot more work-life balance it, you know, in the workplace. A lot of companies are acknowledging the fact that, okay, maybe, you know, if women can work remotely, that gives uh, more people the ability to continue working and to manage a family, manage those obligations outside of work um, when they can kind of do it on their own time and 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 have that flexibility day to day. So I do think that changing norms in the workplace, um, plus the ability to get things like, you know, uh, uh, paternal, maternal care leave, Yeah, that's now you know, really the norm in most workplaces. So, you know, moms are are able to step away. Dads are also able to step away, maybe have some portion of their income retained, or at least knowing they're not going to lose their job if they step away um, for a set period of time without an income. So there, I do think it, it is becoming better in terms of um, women are not feeling really forced out of the workplace. There are definitely solutions there if they want to continue. Um, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of women still are going to say, I'm, I'm just going to step away for a few years. Um, and they may not realize what that may do to their income in the long run. Right. But life, you know, life dictates what you should or shouldn't do. And many times the, the ability to raise a family, be around kids when they're younger is something that uh, I believe often is more important in many cases than the few years in the workforce. Now, as a household, obviously, you still need a certain amount of income to run the house and pay for bills, et cetera. But that's a tough decision, be it male or female. It's hard. Do I stop work? Do I trim down the amount of work for, for the sake of being home with kids? And I think most people probably won't regret if they do. Like what, what's that old saying that no one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I worked more. 
during my life. Absolutely. Definitely something to keep in mind. Okay, great. What else? What do you got, Laura? Yeah. So, you know, another thing that has come up a lot recently is what's happening with wages in the workforce, the quote unquote gender wage gap. And so basically, this is something we're hearing more and more about. And I want to make sure people understand this is not um, paying a female worker less for doing the exact same job as a male worker. That's illegal. Okay. That Mm -hmm. is something that Fortunately, due to, you know, laws, federal laws, their worker uh, workplaces are not allowed to do that. However, this wage gap comes about in a lot of other ways. And it does vary a lot based on the country where you live, the, the industry that you're in, um, the education level that you have. There are a lot of things that that make this wage gap higher or lower. And basically, um, it, right now, it, we we know that on average, women are earning 80 cents for every dollar that a man is earning. So what that means is maybe it comes down to women not being in management positions, leadership roles. It could be um, maybe they're not going into more high paying fields like engineering or, um, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. This can be a lot of different reasons why women may end up in positions that are paying that 80 cents to a dollar compared to men. And so over a lifetime, as we've been talking about, you know, the compounding effects of of income, um, simply having that wage gap, it doesn't only affect women. It's something that affects every household out there because it means every household has less to save and invest. It has less. So it's not just a women's issue. This is truly a, um, you know, a, you know, an American issue. It's every country out there. Um, I will say there are some countries that are doing a lot better than the U.S. is in terms of, of the way of closing this wage gap. Um, some of the uh, Scandinavian countries, for instance, are, are much closer to parity. Um, but we, so it, you know, it's going to vary depending on on cultural norms and opportunities. But still, right now in the U.S., we're talking about eighty cents to every dollar. Um, so, you know, I think acknowledging it and and understanding that there are various reasons why this happens. Um, It doesn't mean every woman needs to go out and have the same job as a man, but I think it just means acknowledging that this wage gap does exist. It does affect all of us. And ultimately, it's going to affect retirement, right? It's going to affect the the ability to save and invest today and, you know, how that impacts um, what you have saved and the wealth you've accumulated for the future. Yeah, definitely. I don't remember. I wish I recall where I saw this. It just came to mind now. I saw a statistic somewhere within the last year or so about MBA programs and I don't, admissions or enrollees in MBA programs. And I don't remember if it was a particular school or like on average for all MBA programs, but it was like 55% female uh, enrollees or the students, whatever the proper term is, versus 45% male. I thought that that was interesting and good. You know, it's good to see. I, I think like you said, there's multiple things that feed into this still persistent difference in wages overall for varying factors that all sort of compounded. And a lot of it was sort of systemic. Like you said, you know, go back however many decades ago, a lot of women didn't work, period. It just wasn't a thing, right? So it takes a long time to sort of overcome that, get into the roles, break the sort of stereotypes where, you know, this is a female job, this is a male job between education and access to STEM programs and whatever, or enrollment in STEM programs. All that stuff seems to be happening. Now, maybe not at a pace that is sufficient enough to really get to parity sooner rather than later. But I know it made me happy to see that whether it's a particular school or schools as a whole, there's more female enrollees in the MBA program than than male. So that's a really good start to help change some of the sort of systemic differences that that have led to the wage gap. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And so we we are, we're seeing more females graduating from undergrad as well as grad school. And um, I think that can, that can only help put women in leadership positions 
put them in a position where they are going to qualify for higher paying jobs and that, you know, they're going to they're going to be um, seen as equals to the males that that they're working with, um, it, you know, whatever level that they're in. So and it doesn't mean every woman has to go out and get an MBA, but it means that um, it, it means that we're probably catching up um, yeah. when it comes to the representation in, in management roles. It's interesting to look at like the Fortune 500 companies in the CEO spots, look at how many are male versus female. And that tells you how long of a way there is to go still to get anywhere close to parity, especially, oh, yeah. the, you know, the highest levels of, of corporate life, um, far from it still. But, okay, uh, good one. And social security, we, we sort of touched on this before and multiple factors play into this, but this is a big one for, for women, right? It really is. And I, I don't think a lot of people truly understand how their Social Security retirement benefits are calculated, um, that those years that they are out of the workforce, um, you know, if they don't have 35 years of earnings, those years are, that, that have zero uh, bring their average down quite a bit. Um, so, you know, having enough working years at the highest um, income possible um, is how you're going to increase your social security benefits for life, right? And adjusted for inflation. So these are really important benefits that so many people are relying on, certainly not 100%, but they're relying on them for a good portion of their, um, their income in retirement. So understanding that having those higher years um, to really balance out, you know, increase the average of those lower paying years, maybe where you were working part time or those years where you were out of the workforce completely, and you're going to see a big fat zero, you know, in your social security record for that year. Um, knowing that, you know, that's how it's calculated. Um, you know, unfortunately, we, did, we didn't make the rules, but we, you know, we got to play along with with what they are. And so um, those 35 years are, going to need to be as high as possible in order to get the highest possible uh, to max out that social security uh, benefit. So again, it just comes yeah. down to not only thinking about the income you're making today, but how's that future income going to be affected? And that's a great planning point, a little technical, but to your point, social security benefits are based on someone's highest 35 years of earnings. Um, if you have zeros in there, such as you, you took a 10-year break from the workforce to, to raise a family or whatever, you're going to have zeros. So in your average of 35 years, there'll be however many zeros that are really going to drag down that average. So where I'm going with this is towards, as you approach retirement, let's assume there's, there's a couple and one spouse already has the full 35 years or more of good earnings from having worked continuously since their you know, early 20s or whatever. The other spouse only has, let's say, 20 years, 25 years from taking a break. That other spouse with those zeros in his or her work record, it's going to be much more impactful to that person's social security benefit to work an additional year to have a year of non-zero wages, knock out one of the zeros from their record of 35 years, as opposed to the other spouse who already has the full 35 years. So um, it's not quite that simple, but like if, you know, a married couple, they're considering retiring, one of them wants to work, one kind of doesn't, and they're trying to weigh who should work another year or two. That's one thing to consider is the one with the, you know, the, the smaller social security record. It may benefit you two collectively more to have that person work that extra year if possible, but you know, there's, there's more to it than that still. Yeah. And so I do encourage women um, when looking at job opportunities, you know, in some cases, you know, money is not the only only factor we want to look at. Right. There's yeah. benefits. There's the the uh, the people you're going to be working with, the, the responsibilities, all those things. However, if there is an opportunity, you know, and this happened to me being able to um, work in California for years where base salaries there are just higher due to cost of living. Yeah. Um, so I had a few years there with really high earnings compared to working in the southeast simply due to cost of living. So um, whether you're based in California or whether you're working remotely, you know, in a in a state, an area with a lower cost of living, that could benefit you simply from social security standpoint. Right. Just having those bigger numbers are just 
um, they're not adjusted based on the, the cost of living in that state, for instance. So the number there is the number. And so that's the number that, that Social Security is looking at when, when calculating. So, you know, if you have that opportunity, even for a year or two, that could help make up for some of that lost time if, if you did take some years out of the workforce. Yeah, great point, especially now post-COVID, where you work and what state you or what company you work for, much less location dependent. So if you can get California-based wages, even if you're not in California, like great, right? That, that'll, the more the better in that case. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Cool. Uh, healthcare, healthcare costs, how, how does that potentially differ for women versus men? Yeah. So when we think about healthcare, um, again, just biologically, women are going to have more healthcare needs over their lifetime than men. Now, that's, you know, really, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really painting with a broad brush there. But in terms of maternity care needs, child care needs, um, there's a lot of expense for women um, that, you know, men may not have. Um, again, painting with broad brush here, but um, it does mean that, especially during childbearing years, um, women may really have a lot more to come out of pocket, um, especially if you've got a high deductible health plan, you know, you've got a plan that is really only picking up um, uh uh, cost after a pretty large out-of-pocket amount, um, that means that, you know, those expenses are going to perhaps keep you from saving, keep you from investing, um, yeah. could be holding you back, just depending on how much those are. Um, so those long-term costs also might go into uh, retirement. As you, we talked about that longer lifespan, well, you know, does that mean females are probably going to have long-term care costs for a longer period? In many cases, yeah. they might simply because they're living longer. Um, and so hopefully you're going to be living longer and having great health. But we know that in a lot of cases, you know, older folks are going to need, uh, they're going to need some level of care. So whether that's in home care or um, in, a, in a facility, those costs can really add up. So thinking about providing for those costs for a longer period, perhaps, than a male. Again, this is just something that's got to be factored in um, to the planning needs on the front end. Right. And another thing that can also sort of compound if married couple and the spouse dies sooner, let's just, again, assume male, female, assume the male's probably going to die before the female. If the male had or needed long-term care uh, or extended care you know, the surviving spouse, probably there was costs associated with that that could have dipped into their collective savings. And even I'm sure the spouse was at least partially the caretaker, if not solely the caretaker for, you know, the, the spouse that had already passed. So the surviving spouse going to live longer and may have his or her own um, extended care, long care, long term care needs, and potentially also had to pay some long term care expenses for the spouse that passed. Right. So another potential you know, double doozy, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, you know, with my parents, my, with my dad dying so quickly, that, that wasn't something, fortunately, that my mom had to deal with. Yeah. But she has lots of friends who are, you know, in their late 70s and 80s who are caring for uh, for a, a male spouse or partner. And that really can eat into um you know, they're just their day-to-day living expenses, the things that they can do. And not only that, as you mentioned, it's, okay, what's going to be left for me as the surviving spouse for my, my care? So um, that first spouse that might be ill or need care, of course, we're going to want to do everything possible yeah. to to care for them and give them everything they need, probably to the detriment, you know, of the the surviving spouse in a lot of cases. So these are really heavy issues um, yeah. that that have to be considered. Um, but again, I think just thinking about healthcare through sort of the the journey of a woman's life from childbearing years all the way through a very potentially long life means that she really has to save and invest more to account for those costs. Yeah. And th this is a hard one, the, trying to figure out decades into the future, potential long-term care expenses, medical expenses. The numbers can be quite staggering, especially if you look at the sort of extreme, you know, hypothetically possible, but extreme examples where someone is in a 
two to three year intensive long-term care facility with you know really involved needs where you can quite easily spend $10,000 a month plus on that care. So if you tried to build into your financial plan, both party, you know, both spouses having two to three years of 120 to 150 grand a year, if not more of expenses, I don't know that, you know, in the extreme scenario, some people, you're just not going to be able to plan for that. I mean, there's traditional long-term care insurance, but as everyone knows, it gets increasingly expensive and anyone who has a policy, I'm sure has seen really large increases in premiums over the last, you know, every few years. Not saying it's a bad product, but a lot of people struggle to stomach that. You have this policy at 50, 60 years old that you may never use or, you know, you, you keep carrying it and every year it goes up 10% or more. That's a hard pill to swallow as well. Now, if you need it, like any form of insurance, if you do actually need to use it, you're super glad you have it. Uh, but if you don't, it's it's tough. You know, I, I discuss this with people, with my clients, and there isn't always an obvious or right solution. Different people have different views about how they, they want to try to cover potential long-term care expenses. And um, it's always a difficult, hard decision, and, and it's never that obvious. So it's it's a challenging one, but it's an important one to still give thought to regardless. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, you know, of, of your clients, do, do many, if any at all, uh, purchase long-term care insurance? Um, some, some do, some have policies that are relatively old and quite generous compared to current policies you'd be able to buy or new policies you'd be able to buy today, but no surprise, those legacy generous policies, the premiums are, are going up a lot in some case, 30 plus percent premium increases, um, you know, where it was a thousand bucks a year. And now over the course of multiple increases, it's 3000 plus a year of premiums. Some people still have those and inevitably every year, every couple of years, they're going to get a notice saying your premiums are going up. Here's your options. You can keep your coverage you have now, but your premiums going up, whatever, you know, 20, 30%. You can trim your coverage down some. You can reduce like the inflation increase you have in it, or you can reduce the total amount of coverage we're going to pay you. So there's levers you can pull. You can still have some coverage, but, you know, reduced from what you originally had just for the sake of keeping the premiums manageable. So some people still have that. Um, a few people, uh, have, or are considering hybrid policies, which is ultimately life insurance, but with a long-term care rider bolted onto it that says, if you do have a long-term care event, you can in effect tap the policy early to pay for your long-term care needs. That obviously takes away some or all of the eventual death benefit. But the nice thing is you get some benefit regardless. You know, if you die without needing long-term care, you get the death benefit or your heirs do. Uh, if you need have a long-term care event before dying, then some or all of your benefit goes to pay for that. Uh, so that's another option. And some folks, depending on their asset size, they, they'll simply just self-fund, um, mm -hmm. especially if they don't have really burning, strong legacy desires to leave a big boatload of money to kids or charities or whomever. So it really all depends. Um, again, it's a hard decision. Some some cases, it's somewhat obvious. If you've got $10 million and you live quite modestly, like you can self-fund. Um, Unless you're trying to really lock down a monstrous legacy for someone else, in which case, yeah, then you want to offload it to insurance. But it's it, it's fun and challenging to do this analysis with people and have the discussions because, again, in, in, except for a few circumstances, it's it's rarely like smack you in the face, very easy answer as far as how to address this. Yeah, and I think it's good just to talk about all the alternatives, all the options that are out there so people yeah. know, okay, if the long-term policy is just completely unaffordable, you know, maybe that life insurance, you know, with the long-term care or an annuity with some long-term yeah. care, right, or something like that is is an option. Um, and, and just letting people know, you know, none of them are perfect, but... Yeah. But it, it it is again more about as you said insurance. It's the only thing you buy. And you hope you'll never need to, to right. use, right? It it is more about peace of mind for a lot of people um, than you know maybe having to use it. Um, although it would certainly be nice to to you know as you said have uh, have that long term care there, especially if the threshold. Um, to receive those benefits is not super high. Um, yep. And and so, um, yeah, again, it, you know, it comes down to education and just understanding, okay, here are the options and um, just weighing pros and cons of, of, of all of them. That's all we can do. 
Yeah. And, and for some folks, frankly, the only real option is to just not get insurance. You don't have enough to self-fund. You just have to face the reality that if and when you do have a, a prolonged, expensive long-term care event, you're probably going to have to be in a position where you spend down your assets and then Medicaid kicks in and, and covers the rest. Now, there's pros and cons to that. And, and each state's a little different because Medicaid is a joint venture between federal and, and state governments. So every state's going to be slightly different. But uh, especially for folks without a lot of investable assets, then there's no magic number to what's a lot, what's not. But for such folks, it'll be cost prohibitive to be paying three, four, five thousand dollars a year for long-term care insurance, potentially for multiple years. That could be a real drag on finances if you don't have a substantial assets. You might have to go the Medicaid route, you know, if the event does happen to you, and just spend down what you have, and then uh, Medicaid helps you know cover the rest at that point. So, okay, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, Next one. This was a term I first heard a few years ago. I don't recall where, but it was, I thought it was a brilliant term. Not in a good way, unfortunately, but the term pink tax. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So pink tax is not a real tax. This is not, you know, something new that you're going to see on your tax form this year. Um, it is, so it's not a literal tax, but it's something that you can kind of think of as an add-on um, to certain types of expenses. So for instance, when my husband goes to get his hair done, it's about a $25 bill. When I get mine done, it's about a $125 bill, right? So it, dry cleaning. Um, typically women are charged more Um for dresses and and the yeah. and just skirts things like that than men are for uh, typical business wear. So it's different levels of uh, services, goods and services that are upcharged for women. Um, and you know, it's not that all women are going to pay more for every single service out there. But the idea is that a lot of goods and services are higher. The prices are higher because, in many cases, women will pay um, for certain things. And then there's, you know, just things like um, uh, clothing for women and makeup. You know, I've done a lot um, in terms of um, video work, and and always I hear from women in broadcasting. I can't believe the men don't have to buy all this makeup and don't have to buy all these clothes. And so, you know, there's this expectation of women in certain fields and industries that they have to um, dress a certain way, look a certain way. And so those expenses add up. Um, and certainly we can fight back as consumers. We have the ability to shop around. We have the ability to, um, you know, really uh, create spending plans and make sure that we're not overspending in certain categories. Um, but the idea is that whether it's toys that are marketed to kids that moms end up buying um, yeah. or, you know, skincare, all of these things that are marketed specifically to women and, and kids um, can end up really hurting women's pocketbooks. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned like makeup and sort of skincare routine. So my wife has, I don't even know how many bottles and, and things and whatever that goes into showering versus washing your face. And <laughs> she, she, you're going to cringe when, when uh, I say this and she does as well. I use a bar of Dove soap in the shower. I wash my body and my face with it in the shower. My wife's like, oh no, you use warm water, hot water on your face and Dove soap. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, is it going to matter over the long term? I mean, it probably will, but, um, you know, I might end up looking a little more aged than I should have uh, by the time I'm whatever. But to your point, it's cheap. What's a bar of Dove soap? You know, I don't know. And, and that that's my entire body cleansing routine. And that lasts me how long versus my wife has a dozen, dozen different uh, tubes, bottles, elixirs. I don't even know what they are. Um, so that, exactly. that's a prime example of the pink tax, right? Exactly. So yeah. there's this this perception, this branding perception that, you know, I, I don't know why women, you know, fall prey to this, but in a lot of cases we do. So, you know, yeah. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, nothing wrong with buying <laughs> skincare and, and, you know, nice hair products. Um, it's just realizing that there there is a good bit of marketing involved and, and upselling involved in many of these products. And um, my, so I have two daughters, they're 14 and 16. And I can only imagine the stuff they're seeing on TikTok and Instagram and all the other social things that are on, but their skincare routines and the stuff that they want us to buy them, these expensive uh, masks and scrubs and like you're 13, you're 14, like, no, you, you don't 
need this now maybe to their defense like the earlier you start with proper skincare the the longer it uh you know the better habits and long-term skin health you have but it's like i don't know maybe because i was a boy not a girl but i don't remember in high school other than like noxema and oxyclean uh i don't remember my friends who were girls having these elaborate expensive skincare regimens and, and tubes and whatever else so Absolutely. i think it's all marketing right Absolutely. Yeah. Social media is making this stuff just so in your face. And they do such a good job marketing and branding. Um, and as as you're seeing with your young girls. So, you know, again, nothing wrong with having some luxuries here and there. But I think it's just realizing that um, we don't want to fall prey to yeah. marketing campaigns and branding if it's really not a priority in our financial lives. Um, right. Sure, if you've got a budget and it's part of your spending plan, wonderful. But if it's causing you to overspend, if it's causing you to um, pull back in other areas um, like saving and investing where you could meet your financial goals, that's when it's a problem. Yeah. Um, so it's really understanding, am I juggling all the things that I want to accomplish with my money um, well enough? And if not, then it's time to really do some analysis and, and pull back in those categories that are not serving you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Don't don't live like a pauper just because, but if you're spending lavishly or, or spending more than you should to the point that it's a detriment to your longer term financial picture, that's when it needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, next point. This one's sort of stereotypical, but but I, I think it's true anecdotally. Risk, risk tolerance, risk aversion. How, how does that differ between the genders? Yeah, so study after study has shown that women tend to be um, more risk averse. Okay, we tend to value safety, security, and kind of have a, more of a stability mindset than many men. Again, we are painting with very uh, a broad brush here, but right. it is something that um, we do see that men have a bit more tolerance for risk and, and tend to make more transactions in their yeah. financial lives, tend to buy and sell um, more frequently. And in the long run, that can actually help women who, who are not buying and selling and, and um, um, paying as many transaction fees um, as men in some cases. But the idea is that um, women may not want to really swing for the fences when it comes to their financial lives. They may feel just more peace of mind knowing that, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not earning you know, the, the high rate that I could if I were in this particular um, stock or stock fund, but I'm not going to see the volatility either. And there's some peace of mind there. So it really is a real balancing act, depending on your financial goals, your time horizon, all the things that you're, you know, you're looking for. Um, and I think acknowledging that you are a little risk averse is a good thing to, to just come out and acknowledge and, and, you know, don't be afraid to, um, to adjust a portfolio based on that, but also understand what is it costing you? Um, you know, if you are somebody that says, I just am not willing to have any volatility, I'm just going to put everything in a CD, um, understanding what that's costing you over the long term, you know, some of the, the biggest risks that you can ever take with your finances is not taking risk. If you do yeah. not ever put your money at risk, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to have growth that's going to outpace inflation. That's going to be enough to hit your aggressive financial goals. Now, if your financial goals are not that aggressive or your your timeline is, is quite close to retirement, that's a whole other story. But if you're young, you're middle-aged, and you're really trying to uh, accumulate some, some nice wealth for retirement, understanding that risk is simply a part of our financial lives yep. and maybe slowly accepting a little bit more. I never encourage anybody to just, you know, go out and, and change their investment portfolio from quite conservative to, to more risky. But taking some smaller steps, perhaps each year, making some adjustments to, to make your portfolio um, a little bit, maybe more Stock heavy, you know, just trying to get a little bit more risk and growth in your portfolio um, slowly over time and seeing that, okay, yeah, there is some volatility there, but that's okay because 
um, I have a long time horizon. I've got decades to go. I can weather this. And and that's part of it. We want to see some volatility. Um, yeah. If we didn't have any volatility, we wouldn't have any long-term growth to, to look forward to. So this is something that I think is unique for all people. Uh, we're, and I'm definitely not saying that that women are the only folks that that don't like risk. Um, but it is something to understand that if you're going to accept lower returns for a long period, you likely may not hit your retirement goals. Right. Yeah, this is sort of technical terms, but there's two key concepts everyone should be aware of and sort of take away from this. There's your risk tolerance and your risk capacity. Risk tolerance is just sort of the subjective views towards risk. Like I'm not comfortable with it. I don't like seeing my account balances go up and go down month to month. Uh, I, I get freaked out when I see a heading on CNBC. It says Dow drops whatever X percent today. That's risk tolerance. You may have a really low risk tolerance, but then there's your risk capacity, which are sort of the objective quantifiable uh, abilities or needs to take risk. Like you said, if you're 20 years old, just starting in your in your career, and you're saving money in a 401k or some other longer term savings vehicle that you don't expect to touch for 30, 40 years, you have a lot of risk capacity with that portion of the money because you have decades for it to potentially be crazy along the way, but hopefully grow substantially over those 20, 30, 40 years. Versus if you're saving for a house and you're going to need the money in six months for a down payment, that bucket, that portion of your money, you have really low risk capacity. You don't want to put it in something that's going to drop 30%. And oops, there goes your ability to buy the house. So even though you may have low tolerance for risk, you may have some, some areas of your financial life where you need, you have higher risk capacity where you should be taking some risk. So it's hard to balance those two and, and reconcile them. Uh, but, but it is important to you know, have the conversation with yourself or if you work with someone, discuss with, with them. But it is something that needs to be addressed and, and, and accounted for because to your point, not taking enough risk could be detrimental, uh, all said and done. In some cases, not, but in many cases, it, you know, it can be an issue. Great points. This sort of sort of related, uh, not entirely, but sort of related is general financial confidence. Like you said that males historically tend to trade more. They probably have higher confidence that they think they know what they're doing and could beat the market or they got this hot tip or whatever. Um, females generally tend to have less trading activity in investment accounts. Presumably some of it is due to just confidence, financial confidence, right? Absolutely. I think we're seeing more women, you know, getting more involved in finances and becoming more confident, but we're still behind when it comes to, to men. And a, a lot of women want to take a back seat to the finances. Maybe they feel like, hey, you know, he's making most of the money. Let's he can pay the bills, he can manage. And I'm just going to kind of um, take care of more household things. And and that really leaves women um, very vulnerable because they don't understand what's going on with the household finances. That lack of understanding can lead to a lack of confidence. So really the only thing that can um, kind of be a counter to that is getting involved, really understanding what is your budget, what is your objective, your investment objective as a couple, what are, what are your your joint goals? And really getting involved and having a say in, in how your money is managed um, really is the antidote to that lack of confidence. And just general education, you know, listening to a podcast, reading books, just kind of um, following that curiosity and, and learning more is, is the way to, to gain confidence. So I do think you're right. A lot of women may... Um, may feel like they are a little more uh, afraid of risk because they they don't have that um, that confidence. Um, but a lot of it also has to do with the fact that the financial industry is quite male dominated yeah. still very much. And so for a lot of women, they feel a little strange about going into an office and not having a friendly female face there to kind of relate to them. And so, you know, I want to encourage people not to stay away from advisors because, you know, you may not be able to find a female advisor. There are plenty out there, but you can also find great male advisors. Andy, you're one of them. And being able to have open conversations with people is, is really 
half the battle, would you say? I mean, you can't have a good relationship with an advisor if you can't be open and honest. Um, yeah. So whether that's male, whether that's female, that's really the goal is finding somebody that you can speak openly and honestly with and even say, hey, I'm kind of I'm kind of coming at this like, you know, a seven year old. Um, I don't know anything. Being able to admit what you do and, and don't know is super important. Um, and so trying to find somebody that can help educate you along the way, having a really kind of education first focus um, is so key. So don't let that lack of confidence keep you from saving and investing and moving forward with your goals, because there are definitely great people out there that can help you. But I think as more women get into the financial industry, that's going to change a lot of women's perspective on seeking out an advisor in the first place when they know, okay, um, you know, I, I can find somebody who's like me, who maybe thinks like me, has similar right. goals and objectives. Yeah, I have a few thoughts. Um, I, I, I agree. It, it could be a very intimidating environment. The finance world, especially the advisor world, is very male dominated. Um, not a good thing. I mean, just sort of the vestiges of days of yore, I suppose, but it hasn't quite shaken that yet. And there are, it's hard to be vulnerable. Like you said, say, teach me like I'm a seventh grader or seven year old or, you know, whatever it was. I agree. That should be the level of openness people should have with potential advisors, but that's hard to be that vulnerable, especially again, knowing it is a very male dominated industry that has been its own worst enemy at times with being overly salesy and being overly male-ish in, in its approach to what it says, what it does. So I sort of can't blame people if if they're reluctant to approach advisors or they got burned because there are a lot of snakes out there, unfortunately, still. But trying to bring it back around to you do need to find someone, you know, a prospective advisor who seems open, who seems honest and genuine, willing to share it's hard to do in the first meeting. If you just randomly find someone down the street, you go walk into his or her office and say, okay, I want, you know, I'm interviewing advisors. That's hard. What I think is helpful, like any content you have out there is, is phenomenal education. I know you're not an advisor, but phenomenal education that I, I recommend everyone, you know, listen to, read, et cetera, watch. In my case, same thing. Like all the content sources through Facebook group, podcasts, et cetera, newsletter, I know lots of people, male and females alike, are just passively soaking that up, taking it in, learning from it. Every now and again, someone will reach out to me, oftentimes female, and be like, wow, I just I learned so much from this, from your stuff over the last year. I can't thank you enough. Now I feel confident to go. You know, I know what I don't know. I know the questions to ask. That that makes it all worth it. Like all the hours it takes putting this stuff out to the world for people to listen to and read and watch to get one good bit of feedback like that where it actually made a difference and I didn't sell the person anything and they genuinely learned and got confidence from it. That's amazing. And I'm sure you have lots of stories like that too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Doing this um, podcasting weekly for 15 years. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many people that have just said, I opened an IRA today because of this show or I... Yeah finally started making a plan or I um, had a conversation with a spouse about what we want to do, or I put a kid through college. I mean, all of these incredible things. And it does just start with that little nugget of knowledge, that little inspiration of, okay, what's possible? What is the norm? Where should I go for more information, more resources? Um, just that little spark of, of interest in somebody who hadn't, you know, hadn't thought about money and maybe they went through some terrible life situation like a divorce and yeah. uh, finally decided, okay, now I've got to manage money on my own. I've got to build credit. I've got to really take the reins here um, and feeling so, you know, so little confidence about money. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot to get up to speed with some just good fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, you know, if anybody out there is feeling a lack of confidence. Um, I would say just keep keep plugging, keep keep listening to podcasts, keep reading, um, just keep looking for answers, and you will definitely find them. And um, yeah, it 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 does make it all worthwhile. I I agree. I I do come at this totally from education. So 
when I get those wonderful pieces of email and feedback, it, it does make it all really seem very worthwhile because it is a lot of work, as you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and to your point of people that just keep listening, keep consuming, at first it'll be like drinking from the fire hose, especially if you have no background, you know, minimal experience or knowledge in this stuff. Everything you hear, read or see is going to seem overwhelming at first. But the more you hear, read or see, eventually you'll start to pick up the same things and like, oh yeah, I already knew that. Oh yeah, I already heard that. And it'll reinforce what you know or what you didn't know you know. And then finally, the picture just starts to form. And then one day, I don't know what, it, you know what the impetus or what the trigger is, but one day it's like, wow, I understand this now. And like the confidence and education just at that point forward just, just starts to really skyrocket once people really latch on to this stuff. So, so thank you for, for doing all you do. And stick around to the end, everyone, because uh, Laura will give a shout for how best to find her and her, her content. Um, you touched on this in the last one, but like major life events, major change, such as divorce happening. Now, all of a sudden, someone's responsible for managing their money where they, they maybe uh, weren't the active participant in the planning and investments and stuff. Um, I think everyone's loosely aware of of the demographic of people over 50 or over 60 and, and divorce statistics among them are fairly high. Uh, term called gray divorce. What, what can you share with us about that? Yeah. So. For those over 50, the divorce rate is higher and it's higher than 50%, which is the rate for those who are under 50. So we're talking about a pretty high rate of divorce. And this could be for many reasons. Folks could have stayed together for the kids. Finally, they're out, they're on their own. And now it's like, okay, you know, we're, uh, we're in the house together and, and this is not working out. Um, and at that point in life, there's certainly a lot that goes into untangling decades of, of, of living a life together that can be yeah. quite complicated. Um, so those, those divorces can be financially more complicated than a young couple that is divorcing. Um, so it could also be more difficult for women to get um, the financial support that they need, even health insurance. Um, I worked with a woman once who um, got divorced and her husband just, you know, took her off the health plan without saying a word to her. Unbeknownst to her, she was uninsured and her children were uninsured for months. Uh, fortunately, she, she figured it out and finally, uh, you know, got her own insurance, but made the assumption, that's just one example, but, you know, she made the, the assumption that she would have been notified if her husband had taken mm. her off that insurance policy. Um, so, you know, that's something that could affect younger folks and families. It can affect folks at any age, obviously. But just being involved and understanding what's going on in the dynamics of your, your financial household is so important, um, especially if you think divorce could be on the horizon um, as you get older. So that great divorce could leave women a, a little bit more financially vulnerable at a point where they're basically pre-retirees, um, could really leave them with a whole lot less for retirement than they had expected. And at that point, you know, you're talking about being 10, 15 years away from retirement, you've got a lot of quick catching up to do. Um, that may be quite difficult. And it could mean women really have to work a lot longer than they had anticipated. Yeah, not I guess not, not a guess, but you know, I, I guess I know not ideal to be divorcing late in life, but life happens. And um, keep in mind, even if it's 50, and you divorce, you still have 35, 40, maybe 40 years of life, like you're not at the end. Don't, don't think of this as you're in the final stretches and, and all of a sudden this happened, like may not be That's what right. you chose to do, right? But there's there's still a lot of life you have to structure and live how you want to live and make what you want to make out of, even at 60 for that matter, you know, 25 plus years probably for many people. Um, so not saying make lemonades out of lemons, but, uh, you know, great divorce could actually be an opportunity and who knows, maybe you end up happier going forward than you were in the previous 20, 30, 40 years. Cause like you said, maybe you stayed together for the kids or, you know, both spouses had their own lives between work and childs and childbearing and whatever child raising. Um, 
you both retire now you're home all the time every day and you've never had that in your adult lives and it's like you're really messing up my routine and i don't like this right like that happens unfortunately and that's one of the, the contributing factors to great divorce so if you do find yourself in great divorce just to the extent you can keep you know positive mindset about it like you still have a lot of life left and who knows this may end up being a blessing in disguise all said and done so that that's right it, yeah. get the professional legal guidance you need to, to, yeah. to make the most of it right exactly and finally a term i like this term i mean it's not a good thing but uh i think it's a fairly appropriate term something called the widow widower's penalty What's yeah. That? So, you know, this was something I had to kind of warn my mom about after my dad died. And basically it's that sur- the surviving spouse, which we have said are, are typically women, um, end up paying more taxes uh, once they're filing as a single than they did um, as a married couple uh, prior to the, the spouse's death. Um, so, you know, this is just comes down to the math and how the tax brackets, uh, pan out, um, for 2024 singles hit the 22% bracket at 47,150 married folks hit that at 94,300. So what ends, you end up hitting that bracket a lot faster as a single, uh, basically than you did when you were married. And so, um, just something to think about, something to plan for uh, in that year after the the spouse's death. Um, it, it's unfortunately just part of the law right now. Maybe that will change going forward. We don't really know. Um, but just another uh, another quote unquote widow's penalty or, or or you know some kind of pink tax. Maybe maybe that is an actual pink tax <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, to think about and plan for. Yeah, I I just have a bit of a counterpoint to that because I've gotten this feedback from others. So I've always used the term widow or widower's tax penalty, which as you described is simply when you go from married to single because of the death of a spouse or divorce even, uh, the, the tax brackets compress, the standard deductions get cut in half. So all else equal for a given amount of income, someone's going to pay higher taxes if you're single than you would if you were married. And people pointed out, and I guess rightfully so, is it a penalty to single folks or is it that the single folks tax situation is the standard and married people just get a benefit they get get a gift for lack of a better word so it depends how you how you choose to frame that and i, I just put that out there because I, I never really thought about it that way i was like oh yeah i guess you know that that is a valid way to view it depends from whose perspective you're looking at it but regardless you know however you choose to frame it and view it it, it is a fact a, a tax law fact that when you go from married to then single all is equal again. You're going to be paying higher taxes because brackets collapse. Now, fun fact: um, the IRS is getting away from the terms widow and widower, which are surviving female and surviving uh, male, respectively. There's a filing status that used to be called uh, qualifying widow or widower, which was simply if you were married, spouse died, and you have a dependent uh, child, let's say, uh, from that marriage that you're caring for. There's a special tax filing status called qualifying widow or widower. As of 2022, they renamed it. Uh, it's now called a qualifying surviving spouse filing status. So I guess they're trying to get away from sort of uh, gender labels and just, like, they got a point. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, this, this applies just the same. So fun fact. So, you know, with that in mind, maybe the widow's penalty, we should rename the surviving spouse penalty, Laura. There right? you go. I like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. This, this this was great. I, this was all um, I had that, I, you know, I thought would be good to discuss. Anything else you want to add or throw in here? No, I think we, we hit most of it. I'm sure there are more issues that women could come up with that they've struggled with or are worried about. Um, but these are kind of the main things that that have been at the forefront of my mind um, when we're talking about trying to kind of bring women up to um, – to where they need to be in terms of education and and parity with with income and benefits. Um, so the moral of the story here is it all comes down to planning. You know, it it, it comes down to um, thinking about what can you do today. Um, and as you mentioned, it's not about sacrificing everything today for tomorrow. We have to live for today, and yeah. and that's the balance all of us are trying to strike. Right? How do we use our financial resources to have the best life we can today, 
without disappointing our future selves um, and making those plans. Uh, studies have shown simply having a plan in the first place can reduce stress uh, because you feel like there's something happening that's beneficial and positive. That's kind of working in the background for you. Um, and, and it's amazing that I've seen this happen to a lot of people once they come up with just a, a very simple spending plan budget. Um, it, it really, they reframe everything and they go from being worried to knowing, okay, I have a plan. Yes, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be a few years before I reach all my goals. Um, but that plan can be so powerful. So I think that's the moral of the story plan the best you can. And um, just thinking about some of these issues, having those conversations with an advisor, if you have one, um, or having these conversations with your partner or spouse, somebody who's invested in your financial life um, can really go a long way to, um, you know, making you feel better and, and being proactive. It's cheesy and it's a bit harsh, but the term failing to plan is planning to fail uh, holds a lot of truth. (laughs) So Absolutely. Well, this was absolutely fantastic. I'm sure a lot of people will will get a lot uh, a great insight. And and I picked up some things here, too. So thank you for coming on and taking the time to share. If people want to find out more about you and and your content, how uh, where, where should they go? Yeah, there are a couple places. Um, certainly my website, lauradadams.com is kind of my hub. Um, okay. From there, they can go to the Money Girl podcast. That's a weekly show. As I mentioned, I've been hosting for 15 years and we cover a lot of topics. I interview, I do solo shows mainly, um, but everything from retirement to uh, insurance, real estate, debt, credit, you name it, kind of cover the, the, the broad personal finance and small business topics as well. Um, and I have a newsletter folks can subscribe to called The Money Stack. So I would love to have folks um, participate and enroll. The, the newsletter is free and that goes out weekly. Okay. And I'll have links to all this stuff in the notes so everyone could go check it out, join, et cetera. And be sure to listen to and subscribe to the podcast, Money Girl Podcast. It's it's really a good one. I'm I'm glad you do that. And thanks for grinding away for 15 years. That's a impressively long time to be consistently putting out a podcast. So kudos to you. Uh, thank you. Great to be with you today. I appreciate you having me on the show. All right. Thank you. Take care, everyone. OBKB. That was that. That was really good, wasn't it? Uh, Laura was a great guest, super informative. Great personality, very knowledgeable, and uh, just really good person to talk to about about this topic. So I'm super thankful she was willing and able to take some time and, and come and, and share her uh, wealth of knowledge in this in this area. So for those of you, like like we said when we wrapped, uh, you can find Laura at her best place to find her is probably her website, lauradadams.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-D-A-D-A-M-S.com. You can find a link to that in the notes to this. From there, that, that's her hub, as she said. You can find links to all her other stuff, but I'll also put in there a direct link to her newsletter called Money Stack and her uh, amazing podcast, The Money Girl Podcast. I'll have a link directly to that. So thank you again, Laura, for joining. I hope all of you enjoyed this. As always, if you do like and value this podcast, it would be greatly appreciated if you take uh, two shakes of a lamb tail to leave a review or a thumbs up or a like or whatever through whatever podcast listening platform you use to uh, to digest this the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out retirementplanningeducation.com, which is similarly kind of my hub for all of my uh, content. You can find a link to the Facebook group, the YouTube channel. This podcast is there. There's a whole boat full of um, free resources you can download without having to cough up your name or email or phone number. Just click and download and there you have it. And uh, there's also a monthly blog there. So thank you as always for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me for my 88th edition of the podcast. That was a great year. I was 10 that year, 1988. Everyone always says certain years were good years, but I feel like that really was a good year. I don't know why. It just, I remember being at the time, it seemed cool. Um, I guess eight and eight look visually appealing next to each other. I don't know. But anyway, it was a good year. I was 10. That's that. Moving on. Thanks as always for listening. I will see you next time. Take care. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.